If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. Welcome to the History Extra podcast. Fascinating historical conversations from BBC History Magazine and BBC History Revealed. The Roman Empire was used to getting its own way. But there was one power it was never able to overcome. Despite several bouts of warfare, the Parthian and later Persian Empire managed to hold its own against Rome for more than six centuries. Until a new force emerged that would transform the Middle East forever. In his new book, The Eagle and the Lion, ancient historian Adrian Goldsworthy charts the evolving relationship between Rome and Persia, explaining why neither was ever able to vanquish the other. He spoke to Rob Attar. I think most listeners would have some knowledge of the Roman Empire, but it will be great if you could perhaps briefly introduce us to the other players in your book, the Parthians and the Sasanians. It's the, one of the forgotten powers and empires, civilizations of the ancient world, because we, we know the Romans are bigger than anyone else with whom they're in contact. They've defeated the Carthaginians, the other powerful nations. But throughout the history of the empire, from the first century BC onwards, there is this big power that's centred around modern-day Iran, Iraq, Afghanistan, Central and Western Asia and covers a very large area, doesn't have the population or quite the wealth of the Romans. It's not an equal of the Roman Empire, but it's so much bigger and so much more sophisticated than anything else. And essentially, it's the same empire. There are really two ruling dynasties, the Parthians who come first, who have established themselves in the area before the Romans arrive, and then in the 3rd century AD, they're overthrown by the Sasanian Persians. And while there's a, a tendency, not least by the new dynasty itself, to say we're completely different, we're a new, purer, more Persian, more Iranian empire, essentially they're just one noble family that's rebelled and overthrown the royal family. So there, there is so much continuity between the two empires that essentially it is really a, a Parthian, Sasanian, Persian empire that is in contact with the Romans for the best part of 700 years. And, you know, it's, it's, it's equal. The Romans do not conquer it. And one of the arguments of the book is that they don't really try either because they can accept the fact that these people are strong, they're powerful, they're sophisticated, they're, they're easier to deal with than lots of different tribal peoples that they tend to meet elsewhere in the world. And when did Rome and Parthia first encounter each other? One of the problems with a book like this is there are so many little details that we don't have the evidence for. It doesn't survive. So we know the first diplomatic contact comes in the 90s BC, But we can't actually say precisely which year it is, because we know the Roman governor, a man called Sulla, who will go on to greater and more terrible things a few years later, becoming Rome's leader in the first civil war, making himself dictator, all this sort of thing. But he encounters them whilst he's a minor regional governor in charge of a very small army who's intervened in another kingdom in Cappadocia, eastern Turkey, and a Parthian ambassador, an envoy, arrives to talk to the Romans because they've heard about the Romans. So that's happening in sometime in the 90s BC. And the early contact, they're still separated by other kingdoms with whom they, you know, they, they have interest in that area. They're having alliances with some of these people, but it isn't a clash of the border of one empire suddenly runs up against the border of another. At this stage, they're still apart by some distance. 
So your book covers several centuries of history, and it's a long and complex one. Well, we won't be able to go into all of that now. But I wonder if you could perhaps highlight a few key moments in the relationship between these two powers. Well, it's quite interesting because both are aggressive expansionist empires. The Parthians have begun in one of the small provinces in the northeastern corner of the Seleucid Empire, which had been carved up out of Alexander the Great's conquests of Persia and beyond. And they rebel, they establish their own kingdom. The the leaders seem to be from outside originally from the area, and they take the name Parthian from the region they occupy rather than their, their own heritage. They rebel, they build up a kingdom, and they've got used to winning. They've been very successful, they've been expanding. And at the same time, over in the West, the Romans are expanding outwards as well. So when both sides meet, they're used to being the sort of the big kid on the block. They're used to being the most powerful, militarily the strongest. So there's rather a bullish attitude at the beginning where each assumes that the other one's going to be as easy to defeat as all the other peoples they've encountered so far. So the initial contact is is largely diplomatic for quite a while. For several decades, essentially, the Parthians ask for they want recognition. The Romans want the Parthians to keep out of things. But if they're going to recognize or be recognized, the Romans want them to do it in a suitably submissive way, which obviously the Parthians don't consider appropriate. They see the Romans as needing to act in that way towards them. And the early conflict, which comes to characterize in a lot of modern analysis the the whole encounter, even though that's probably a mistake, is when the ally of Julius Caesar and Pompey, the man called Crassus, who's one of the three big men in the Roman Republic, decides that he wants to become governor of Syria. He knows there's a civil war going on between brothers fighting for the Parthian throne and intervenes, although by this time the Parthian civil war is over, The expedition ends up in a disaster. He's defeated at the Battle of Carhai, and then he and a lot of his army is wiped out in the the days that follow as they retreat. So it can be seen as a big epoch-shaping moment where the Roman legionary who stands on his solid two feet and carves out the empire with his short sword, his gladius, suddenly runs up against the Parthian horse archer, who's the antithesis in, in every way. He's mobile. He doesn't want to get close. He wants to shoot you down from a distance. He runs away when you get close and doesn't see any shame in that because he knows he's coming back. This is a plan. It's not part of fear or anything. And you can see it as saying, well, then, then the Romans will never conquer the Parthians because they can't do it militarily. Except that's not really true. And it takes a few decades of fairly intensive conflict between the two, where there are victories and defeats on each side, most of them poorly described, when suddenly it sinks in, in each case, that actually these people are dangerous. They're big, they're powerful, but they're also united. If we negotiate with a Roman emperor, the Parthian king of kings thinks, well, probably that treaty will be kept in a way that if I've got a talk to one petty king and another leader here and another leader, and they're always unstable. I don't know what's going to happen. So the the model, really, for the relationship for a long time is set by the first emperor, Augustus, who threatens and postures and boasts about his great victories over the Parthians, but doesn't fight them, and instead negotiates and does a deal. The Parthians are doing the same thing. They're boasting about how strong they are and how the Romans have to come and beg for their friendship. So both sides sell it to the home audience as this is a great victory. But it's actually a very pragmatic thing. And what's striking is these two expansionist empires realize that when faced with the other, this is not a good proposition. And for the next 200 years, the typical experience is of peace. 
And then you get times of conflict, though they, they tend to be limited wars that follow afterwards, particularly from the 3rd century into the 4th century. Then there's almost a century where, again, they don't fight each other. They threaten, they posture, but basically speaking, it's peaceful until it breaks down again in the 6th century and into the 7th, where fighting becomes a habit, almost. And even though they keep negotiating and talking, and even though the objectives in most of these wars are very limited, it's about glory, it's about plunder, it's about a little bit of an advantage in the, the border areas, in the frontier kingdoms, places like Armenia, the areas around the Black Sea, this sort of thing. They don't try and take the other one out. Even in the times of conflict, there's this acceptance that, yes... Can't, you know, we can't, from their own point of view, we can't do Alexander the Great. We can't go off and march all the way to India. It just isn't possible. They're too strong for this now. So we accept that and we do the best, but we also make sure that they, they treat us with respect. And the, the Parthian attitude is very similar. They talk about recovering the lands of the ancient Persian Empire that Alexander had destroyed, which would take them to the Mediterranean Sea. But they don't really do anything in a concrete way to achieve that. It's, it's more about your prestige, your self-image, propaganda for the, the home market, and just to make sure that the Romans do treat you with the respect that you feel you deserve. It's, so they become more and more alike in the way they treat each other, and that's, I think, the, the interesting thing and the, the, the sort of key theme in the book. And do we know from the source material of the time how the two powers viewed each other? We obviously have far more material from the, the Greek and the Roman perspective. That's, that's the great problem with the ancient world, where... The people who wrote things down are the ones who provide the record. We have to use that. So, you know, you can look at, say, a history of Roman Britain. You never have the slightest idea of what the peoples of this island are thinking. And it's, it's only the Romans who are calling them Britain. So it's, you know, you've imposed a name from outsiders. You never get their, their version of events. With the Parthians and the Persians, there's a little bit. There's a later tradition that's much of it written down in the, the medieval period by Arab authors. And... They've been heavily influenced by the Sasanians, who do their best to rubbish the Parthian dynasty that preceded them, and even reduce the length of time that the Parthians actually ruled, which is quite interesting. They sort of cut kings from the records, and about basically halve, instead of four and a half centuries, it gets down to about two. There are some monuments. There's a striking series, in particular commissioned by Shapur I, the second of the Sasanian dynasty to become king of kings, a man who, in the middle of the third century, fights a series of successful wars, invades Roman territory, plunders, takes cities, goes back home, and commemorated all this in a multilingual inscription, but also in some stow rock carving showing three Roman emperors that he defeats. So one dies, and he claims to have killed, though probably he dies in the aftermath of a Roman failure. Um, another one he captures and keeps as a hostage, and the other one begs for peace. So you have monuments showing two or three of these Romans and it's very tempting to look at this and think, wow, it's wonderful. Just for a change, our sources aren't dominated by the Romans. We're getting somebody else's viewpoint. But you have to be just as cautious accepting this as you do with Roman propaganda. Because in the end, this is a, a king of kings telling you what he wants you to hear. In the same way that you have Roman emperors like Augustus and others will set up these big inscriptions, boasting of all their achievements, presenting everything in the most favourable light possible. So we have to be cautious. He boasts just as, as they do. But at least it gives us that sense of the sort of things he chose to, to talk about. So he emphasises the sheer size of the Roman armies and the number of different countries Roman soldiers come from, that they've brought half of Europe against him and still he defeats them. 
And you have a, a few bits of sources that come from the Jewish tradition where you have communities inside the Roman Empire, but also inside the Parthian and Sasanian that again give you a slightly different take on this because this is a group with their own identity that predates either of these two great powers. And yet you have to live with the reality of that's the world at the time. So it's dominated by the Romans. There are some things we can get. There is, there is some information from the other side. You cannot fully tell the Parthian or the Persian side of things. But on the other hand, you can't fully tell the Roman side either. There are frustrating gaps in our sources. So there is a, a major war fought by the Emperor Trajan, one of three fought in the second century AD. And the descriptions of each one amount to a couple of paragraphs in sources written centuries and centuries later, so vague that they're almost useless. And we know that there were lots of histories written at the time, some by people who took part in this, they just haven't survived. And that's the frustration of all of ancient history is that you have a tiny, tiny fraction of, you know, to, to mix the standards of measuring of 1% of the sources that once existed, that's all that survives. And it tends to be quite partial. So you're, you're piecing together a story, but you also have to admit the things we don't know. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. But is it fair to say from, from what there is that remains, that the two empires did have a fair degree of respect for each other. Yes, it grows. I mean, again, we can we can trace this in the way they address each other. At first, there is a, a Roman sense that, well, we are superior. Yes, this is the next best thing to us, but it's still not as powerful as us, and we're the Romans, we're special, we are the centre of the world. Now, that's very similar to the view that we can certainly see under the Sasanians and appears to be there under the Parthians. It's just that it, they move closer together. By the 4th century AD, the Roman Empire is less strong than it has been. And it's round about this time that, although they've been very polite, when Augustus has negotiations with the Parthians, he tends to send a governor or perhaps a relative, including his adopted son and his real grandson. So there's somebody important, but it's not quite the emperor meeting the king of kings. It's the emperor's representative who is on the day considered equal to the king of kings by the Romans anyway. Later on, you start getting emperors and kings of kings in Persia writing to each other as brother. And these expressions of comparing the two empires to the two lamps or the two eyes of the world. Obviously, it's diplomatic language, so you're flattering, you're telling the other person what he wants to hear because you want to persuade him to do things. And by later on, by the 6th century AD, we have this um, quite detailed description from a Byzantine, a late East Roman source, of how a Persian envoy should be received from the moment they arrive in the empire, how they're to be treated, the honours they get, when they come to the imperial court, the different stages they go through. So the first meeting is a sort of exchange of pleasantries and gifts and, and even, you know, little things like notes to the emperor to ask about the health of not just the king of kings, but any Sasanians he's met during the course of his life. So other ambassadors, um, envoys, this sort of thing. And it is very much, you know, they write to each other as brother. You then get this, 
there's an attempt, a suggestion by um, one Sasanian king that the Roman emperor adopt his son with the intention being that when he dies, that favoured son will succeed rather than the, any of the other sons because with a, a harem and with several wives, there are usually lots of candidates, lots of royal princes around. So you, you're wanting to make sure. Now that, that fails and the, the negotiations are so badly botched by the Romans that it leads to war. Later on, you have the Romans restoring a... Um, a Sasanian prince to, to the throne, and then that prince fighting a war, allegedly at least, in the last great conflict to avenge the murder of the Roman emperor who had supported him. So it moves closer and closer together. There are key similarities in that both see themselves as divinely approved, um, whether it's the earlier on with the pagan Roman Empire, particularly under the, the Christian period, but also the Sasanians. You know, they are the representatives of the great gods of the Zoroastrian tradition on earth, they talk about defenders being defenders of the truth against the lies that inhabit the evil aspects of the world. And they're lawgivers, and they're just. And this is exactly the same as the Romans are saying, we have a peaceful, stable society ruled by law that is good. And the Persians think exactly the same about themselves. And they sort of each allow the other one to be almost as good as they are. So you're never quite the equal. So the Persians think the Romans are, you know, quite good for a load of foreigners and non-Aryans, but they're not really there. And the Romans think much the same, you know, the Persians, they're far more civilized than the Goths and the Vandals and all these other groups out there, but they're still not quite us. So each side has that qualification. They're almost our equal, but not quite. But publicly, they're talking about brotherhood, the need for us to be at peace, how this is to, you know, for the world to work properly and for good to, to prevail, we need to work together. So it develops, but it does become entrenched for centuries. And we've talked quite a lot about the military and diplomatic contact between the two. Was there much exchange in other fields you know, like economic activity, cultural, things like that? There's the, the trade links are, are immense. And that's one of the, the reasons that both sides benefit. And sometimes it's directly, but it's not so much things produced within the Sasanian or the Parthian Empire before that, but it's more goods that need to get through it to reach the Roman Empire. The Roman Empire is this vast market. It's even by the most modest modern assessments of population, you're talking 60 million people by the second century AD. Personally, I think archaeology, as the years pass, will discover more and more settlements and will keep revising that and moving the figure up, up and up. But it's a huge market, and the Romans love luxuries. It's, it's very wealthy, it's very prosperous. They want silks, they want pepper, they want spices which come from Arabia or they come from India or they come from Sri Lanka and these areas. Some of it comes by sea, but even there, there is conflict to control the markets along the coast of the east of Africa. You've got ports from the Red Sea. A lot of it's coming by land as well. So that means going through the, the Parthian or the Persian Empire. Now, the Romans are sort of dimly aware of the existence of China as a great civilization, a great empire far to the east, but there's never really meaningful diplomatic direct contact with them. There's more contact with the Parthians and subsequently the Sasanians because it's that much closer, but it tends to be affected by the strength of each empire. So when Parthia or Persia has expanded further to the east and the Chinese have expanded further to the west, the, the gap becomes closer and narrower. So they talk to each other and they talk. There, there are some Chinese sources of visiting um, the Parthian court and they're in, interested in trade and what do these people have what do they have that's interests us? What do they have that we can sell to them? 
And that continues through. And it, it is a big, big thing. And the periods of great stability particularly favour trade. I mean, it's also true of ideas. You have the apocryphal gospel of St. Thomas, who's supposed to have gone to India through the Parthian Empire. And even if the story might not be true, people could read that and believe it was possible. And there certainly are um, religious and other ideas that are passing philosophical ideas going through, but it's far more goods. So you've got amber coming from the Baltic through the Roman Empire, going all the way to China and becoming valued symbols of members of court and a sign of their rank. One of the strangest things of all is that, of course, as yet, it's not until the 6th century that the secret of, of silkworms is um, taken out of China and brought into the Roman Empire. The Romans love silk because they can, you know, it's, it's such a fine and different um, fabric to anything they have. But they take that silk and they reweave it to make it finer than the stuff that's delivered and, and dye it in ways, particularly in workshops in Syria and various parts of the Roman Empire. And then they sell it back going back through the Parthian and Persian Empire to the Chinese market. And the Chinese become convinced the Westerners have a different type of silk that doesn't have all the qualities of theirs, but has some extra things that they rather like. So unfortunately, for so much economic activity, we don't have the sort of statistics that economists love when you're talking the ancient world. You're looking at traces from the archaeology, little anecdotes in the story, items that turn up a long way away from where you think they should be. So we can trace some of this trade and we can trace the different routes. We can see the fortunes of a city like Palmyra in Syria, where its prosperity is based around organized caravans to get the goods through the desert areas and crossing with armed bodyguards, substantial ones of soldiers from Roman Empire to Parthian and Persian and back again, and everybody realizing this is a good thing and to mutual benefit. So there is, there is a lot of contact um, all the way through, apart from the formal diplomatic contact, to the point where most of the time, movement between the two empires was fairly easy, not to the extent where you didn't know which empire you were in. Later on, there are attempts to regulate it, to control it from the government's point of view in saying that trade must come through this city and enter at this point so we can tax it, essentially, and know what's going on. So essentially, trade is always there. It's less dramatic. It's, it's described far less often. But the sheer scale of it, it and the sheer distances involved are very, very impressive. And it, it's clearly lots of people are making money at different stages all the way through. And it is clearly also to the benefit of the Roman Empire and the, the Parthians and then the Persians. Now you have touched on this a little bit already, but I'd be interested to know what impact the Roman-Parthian-Sasanian relationship had on the other kingdoms and states nearby. How did it shape them? We sometimes forget that the Roman Empire for a long time, relied not simply on directly ruled provinces, but on kingdoms, allies, city-states that weren't formally governed by the Romans, but are your friends and you essentially, you don't want them to do anything you, you don't like, but otherwise you're not too bothered. And this is a practical thing. The Romans don't have the administrative tools to govern the entire empire and to run people's day-to-day -day affairs. They try to do as little as possible. So the Roman Empire is a bit more dispersed in terms of its authority than others. But it's even more obvious when you look at the Parthians and the Persians, because the, the title of the ruler of each empire is King of Kings. That emphasizes from the start, you are the greatest of all kings, but you have local kings that have regions. And within those regions, they're often petty kings as well, a level down. So the Parthian Persian Empire itself is a patchwork 
of different communities, many of them kingdoms, that run their own affairs but are obliged in a sort of semi-feudal sense that when the king of kings says this, you come and you provide soldiers or resources or whatever is required and you join together. You, you sort of owe fealty to him and he therefore has a duty to protect you as well. There are other kingdoms that are around the borders, and Armenia is the biggest one for much of the period till it gets it's carved up, but there are others like Iberia and Albania and these others, and many more that are like, again, we're more familiar with, say, the kingdom of Judea under the Herods from Roman experience. We forget these are largely independent. They are allied, but they do their own thing, and they murder each other in the royal family. There are power struggles. So sometimes allied kingdoms within the Roman Empire, and certainly within the Parthian and Sassanian Empire, will go to war against each other, and central authority will not necessarily intervene. You're, there's a good deal of leeway, and there's also the perception that the emperor in Rome, or the king of kings at wherever he happened to be at the time, because they tend to move around with the seasons, depending on the climate, and to try and cover as much of the empire as possible, might have a lot of other problems, a lot of other preoccupations that means he's not too bothered when two princes hundreds or even thousands of miles away start arguing and start fighting a war, as long as it doesn't disrupt the wider picture. Now, there is a, a tendency, a lot of scholars, when they've looked at this, and particularly looked at the kingdoms in between, to see everything in an almost sort of Cold War mindset, where a kingdom is pro-Roman or anti-Roman, pro-Parthian, anti-Parthian, and they remove agency and a sense of their own initiative from these leaders. Because remember, these kingdoms, again, they are running their own affairs most of the time. These are human beings with ambitions of their own. They're working within a situation where they know there's these two big empires. So they look at it from the point of view as, well, what's best for me? And there would be different factions within most regions that have different views of this. But sometimes it's, okay, this leader has got... Parthian backing, therefore a rifle to him will go to the Romans and say, well, support me, I'll be more friendly to you, and almost accidentally brings the two empires into confrontation, though not necessarily conflict. It can lead to that, it can escalate. But these kingdoms are, are, are not controlled, and these leaders are not the simple puppets. They are far more active, and because of the, the speed of communication, the sheer distances, and the rugged nature of a lot of this country, particularly Armenia and the other kingdom between the Black Sea and the Caspian Sea, they're very hard to control even for their own local kings. So whenever an empire tries to go in and, and run the place, it, it doesn't tend to go well. It, it's difficult. These are places with strong traditions of independent noble families with their own strongholds in the mountains. They're hard to access, they're hard to reach. And these people are, they have careers of their own, they have ambitions of their own, they're not controlled. They are trying to use the Romans and the Parthians Persians. The Romans and Parthians Persians are also trying to do that to them. But it's a lot more personal. When you're the local leader, you are focused on that region, whereas the king of kings or the emperor has all sorts of other, other problems, other things to deal with. And you can get away with a lot. So the history is not just the two big empires. It's all the other players in the game that, yes, they can't stand up against either of the empires on their own forever, but they don't have to. You know, they're never facing its full resources. There's lots of other things going on. There's other help you can get. So it's a, it's a much more complicated, much more dynamic history. Now, as you mentioned earlier on, the two powers never vanquished each other. So what ultimately caused this relationship to end? It is strange, because when you think you're, you're looking at over 600 years, nearly six and a half centuries, and at times there are long periods, generations of peace, then there are outbreaks of war, 
that warfare becomes more common, but it, it seems to be consciously limited by both sides in that you know, the Parthians and then the Persians know they're never going to lead an army to Italy and have water their horses in the River Tiber. And while the Romans from the second century AD onwards will several times march down the Tigris-Euphrates valleys to Tessiphon, Babylonia, that area, sort of modern-day Iraq, where there are several very large, there's a concentration of big royal cities of both the Parthians and the Sasanian Persians. It's Tessiphon where the king of kings is crowned by tradition. And they can take these cities and they can sack them. They never really try to hold on to them. And they certainly never think about going further east into the real Iranian heartland of either dynasty. But in the seventh century, something seems to shift. And it's connected with the reinstallation of Khusra II, a Sasanian king of kings who's been chased out. And the Roman emperor, Morris, gives him military support, Roman troops, a lot of money. And although they've intervened in Parthian and Sasanian civil wars before, this is the most complete one where they, they put a king of kings back on the throne and he stays there and isn't then swiftly overthrown by somebody else. But then Morris is murdered in a, a Roman conspiracy, and Khosrow begins this war of vengeance. And it's, it seems different from the start. One of the problems is we know this war is going to go on for decades. It's going to devastate both empires and leave them vulnerable. The sources are not good enough to make it clear what the Sasanian objectives are and whether they change from being, yes, this is a war of revenge, for my, my the friend who helped me, but also let's reassert Sasanian power, let's get some more border territory we've lost, get the Romans paying us some money to show that we're superior. But it turns into a life and death struggle because for the first time, instead of just raiding into Roman territory, the Persians start staying there. And after overrunning most of Syria, they capture Jerusalem, they overrun Egypt and capture that. They push into Asia Minor, they've got Persian armies more than once reach the Dardanelles and they can see Constantinople, the other side of the water. They make an alliance with the Avars, one of this confederation of tribal groups that's come from the Balkan area. And um, they attack Constantinople from one side. The Sasanians are in alliance with them, though they never really join together in any meaningful way. At that time, the Western Empire of Rome has already gone. So that's, you know, the, there's only the Eastern Empire based around Constantinople left. That's the only time where you're actually thinking, Maybe Constantinople will fall. Maybe this will be a war to the death. For the first time since perhaps at the beginning they thought about it, probably they didn't even then. One where you will destroy the other empire and replace it with your, yourselves. You will simply expand. Instead of thinking, well, we'll fight a war till we gain an advantage and then we'll negotiate and we'll be better off. This is something radically different. And we don't quite know why the change occurs and whether it's a gradual of because we're suddenly thinking, actually... I can do this. You know, the Romans are much weaker than I thought. I've got an advantage. Let's push it to the limit. But the striking thing is that the Sasanians stop negotiating. And when the Romans try and send envoys, they're arrested or even killed. Now, that's a major violation of almost any ancient society. Ambassadors are sacred. You know, it is, it's partly it's in mutual interest, because if you start killing them, then people aren't going to negotiate, which means your wars will be harder. And it might, you know, they might come back and bite you but that they don't. And then it's only when he is overthrown, when you have a palace coup and the Romans by this time have turned the tide enough so that they're no longer losing. They still haven't reconquered most of their territory, but they're not losing anymore. And the Sasanians are exhausted, the nobility's fed up, 
Um, he upsets one of his, his leading commanders who rebels against him. And suddenly both empires are weaker. For the first time, you have a couple of Sasanian king of kings who are not from the royal house of Sasan, not from this one family. They're from outside. And the Roman Empire has shown that actually it isn't so strong, that it can lose whole provinces, that many communities have decided when the Persians arrive that it's not worth fighting because we'll only suffer and we can't rely on the help from the empire. Now, maybe they'll come back one day, great, if they do. And the Persians on the whole have been very tolerant to the occupied people, so they've they've done this. But it's it foreshadows, because it's only a few years after this war is over that you have the sudden expansion of the Muslim Arabs. You know, the Prophet Muhammad has died a few years before, and suddenly these what appear to be comparatively small Arab armies burst out and defeat everybody. And it's partly because they're good at what they're doing, and they're very highly motivated, but they're also skillful. These are brave, but they're well-led. It's partly because of the exhaustion. It's partly because they're not taken seriously. Because the Sasanians and the, the Romans both see each other as the great enemy. And Heraclius, um, the Roman emperor who sort of leads the fight back, inspires his men to face the Sasanians by promising them eternal life if they die in battle. Essentially, you will be a martyr. So it's the equivalent of dying for your faith. He doesn't do that when he fights the Arab armies. And in fact, there's this sort of acceptance, well, they're monotheists, you know, they're, they're not quite um, doctrinally sound as we would see it, but they're, they're not as, as dangerous as this Zoroastrian great Persian empire that we faced for so long. So during that period, and it, in some ways it happens quickly, but bear in mind we're talking years, it's still, it's quickly because the sources are so poor. If we had detailed accounts, we'd probably see more developments going on. It's a revolution in this long, long rivalry, this long, long conflict. Suddenly, the Sasanian Empire disappears in a matter of years and is overrun by the Arab armies. And the Roman Empire loses all the territory it had lost to the, the, the Persians before. So Egypt goes, Syria goes, um, quite a large part of Asia Minor goes. And it's by that time, the Eastern Roman Empire that's left isn't a great superpower anymore. It's a strong medieval kingdom, but that's all it is. But despite the ending of this relationship, considering that it lasted for you know, six, seven centuries, would you, would you characterise it as a success then, the way these powers interacted with each other? I think it is in the sense that, yes, there's conflict and there is waste of resources, there's waste of lives, there are frontier communities that get stormed by the enemy and there are massacres and mass enslavements and all the cruelty of ancient warfare. And ancient warfare did tend to be extremely nasty. But it is limited. And both empires gain. They gain economically through trade with each other, but they also gain stability. The Romans do station quite a lot of troops in their Eastern Empire, though it's always hard to balance how far these troops are there to control some of the more unruly parts of the population within the provinces or are there to defend against the Parthians and the Persians. Probably it's a mixture. Um, but it's much easier to negotiate with... Um, a big power that's stable and that is more like you in many ways than a lot of the other smaller communities that are out there in Iron Age Europe, for instance, or in the on your borders in North Africa. You can do a deal with them. You can sort of understand them. They are different. They are alien to you in in some ways, but they're not so different that you can't do a deal with them. 
It does, however, change. I mean, there, there is a, a traditional view amongst um, historians, particularly historians of the later Roman Empire, is that there is a profound shift when the Sasanian Persians arrive, and that they are far more aggressive, far more militarily effective, far more militant than the Parthians. When you look in the longer term, that doesn't really work. It's true at first for two reasons. One is the Roman Empire at this time in the 3rd century AD is in chaos. It's fighting civil wars all the time. Nearly every emperor dies violently at the hands of other Romans. And it's simply unstable. It's therefore vulnerable. Its armies are busy wasting their strength against themselves rather than um, ready to fight, fight a, a foreign war. You've also at the same time got a big civil war within the Parthian Empire that leads to the rise of Adashir I and then his son Shapur I, the first Sasanian kings of kings. Now, these are people who fought to power by civil war. To unite this empire to which they have no real claim other than they've won this war, it's very good to have a foreign enemy, someone to unite against. And better still, if you can go off and plunder that foreign enemy, humiliate them. I mean, the, the danger is because the two empires do fight these wars periodically, they don't like each other. Deep down, they might respect, they might accept, but they don't like each other. So there is that very easily rhetoric of revenge, of setting things right, of um, you know dealing with a power that is hostile and humbling them so that they will know their place and not attack you. It's particularly so in the context of civil war because the same thing happens when a Roman emperor does well and establishes himself. It's a good idea. If I could go and win a victory against the Sasanians, that would show everyone I'm meant to be emperor and it's worth supporting me. So civil wars feed the foreign wars between the two. And the third century, there are lots of conflicts. The fourth century, for large parts of it, quite a few. And then the fifth century, it's extremely quiet in the latter part of the, the fourth century AD. So there, there is benefit, It's but it's... You know, it's like a habit that comes with some side effects or a medication. You know, they, they do harm themselves, but they gain more than the damage inflicted back on them from the, this rivalry and these conflicts. And that is the nature of the ancient world. There is no one that we know of in the ancient world who thinks of international relations in a modern sense and, it, and thinks of the ideal as peaceful coexistence with others who have a right to be there. Ancient powers think of themselves as special, and that everyone else is out there. And it's summed up well in the, um, the line from Virgil's Aeneid that Rome's destiny is to, to um, spare the conquered and overcome the proud in war. You've divided the rest of the world into two categories, the proud that have to be beaten or frightened so that they then become the humble, admit you're better and keep the peace and do what you want. But it's based around might and strength and domination. And that's very much an ancient mindset of, of every culture we can see. It's the way, partly because if your neighbours are thinking like that, you've got to quickly come to the same point of view, otherwise they'll just keep picking on you. So by ancient standards, this is a, a pretty successful relationship of mutual benefit, but it's, it's a system that has that little bit of instability built in. But the fact that it lasts for so long that it does not escalate until, you know, really that last generation into a life and death struggle between the two. And even that they settle by negotiation with very little territorial difference. The, the, the Persians give up the territory they've conquered in the Roman Empire. The Romans don't gain very much on that. They've basically put things back to the status quo before that last great war. So it does work for them. Um, but there's there's that element of risk, but I think that's that's true of so many things. And the sheer longevity of both empires does rather suggest that having the other one there probably 
is more beneficial than it is harmful. That was Adrian Goldsworthy. The Eagle and the Lion, Rome, Persia and an Unwinnable Conflict is out now, published by Apollo. And if you'd like to be kept up to date with our ancient history output, then be sure to sign up for our ancient history newsletter, which you can find at historyextra.com forward slash newsletters. Thanks for listening to the History Extra podcast. This podcast was produced by Daniel Kramer Arden. A collision between a Chinese jet and an American spy plane. He came and rammed into our left wing. With relations increasingly strained, what are the chances of things spinning out of control? The Western world was asleep. I'm Gordon Carrera. I'll be exploring the friction in this most important of relationships and asking, has the West taken its eye off the ball? You cannot ignore China. From BBC Radio 4, this is Shadow War, China and the West. Listen wherever you get your podcasts.